I've always wanted to be an architect. I always wanted to be an architect. Oh my God. I have always wanted to be an architect. I've always wanted to be an architect. I've always wanted to be an architect. I've always wanted to be an architect. So, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Let's start at least with tell the audience a little bit about your history, about your education, about how you became an architect, and a little bit of background. Okay. So I am Selma Gokur Wilson, and I'm Selma Gokur because I'm Turkish, and I'm Wilson because I'm married to an American. And the easiest way I sum my cultural background is to say I was a Muslim growing up in a Buddhist country going to a Catholic school. (laughs) And that really is the foundation for a lot of how I look at things because they are very divergent, not just in terms of a belief standpoint, but also on a practice level. And also I'm a daughter of a diplomat. So I was born in Prague and then we moved to uh, Cairo, Prague. Now it's called Czechia. Uh, then moved to Cairo, Egypt. Then went back to Turkey to center base. And then my mother and father got divorced. My father was posted to Japan, Tokyo. So I went after a while. So my primary school phase was in Japan. And then from there, we went to Syria then back to base, and then to the UK, where I did train as an architect. So it's just inevitable that as a child, you are constantly trying to figure out what you're taught at home versus what's happening in the outside world. And in this case, the outside world consists of two countries, the school you're going to, which operates on a different culture and the environment that school is in. And that teaches you that there's no black and white, and there's no right or wrong, and that it's all about tolerance and communication because you can only be tolerant if you actually understand something. So I think it really ties into what I understand by management, which is communication. So the foundation to any management, I think, is communication. And my kind of upbringing is a part of that because you, uh, being a diplomat's daughter, a big concern is always doing the right thing because you're representing, as an offspring of the official, you're representing your country and you're representing your country on the playground and you're representing your country at a cocktail party. It doesn't matter. That is your role. And that also plays into why I do things and That's my safety, my backup, and all of that. So I don't know if everybody's personal upbringing is as influential. I'm sure it is, but maybe they've never been asked to vocalize it as many times as I have been. Because people, when I was looking for my first job after graduation, my interview to job rate was ridiculous. It was like, 100 to 1. Everybody wanted to interview me because I sounded like a really interesting person, regardless of whether they even had a job. So Mm. I've always had to explain my CV. Why does it look the way it is kind of thing. So how or when in that 
as you said, childhood and, and that trajectory of your life, does architecture fit in? Architecture was a consequence of a, another situation in that when I moved from Turkey to the UK, Turkey's education is very broad-based. The UK is a very pyramidal education system. So you start at middle school to get more and more precise. And then you apply to university. So I transitioned from middle school to high school and I skipped a year while doing so. And I arrived and they told me I had to choose three topics. So I chose maths, biology, art. And they looked at that selection and they're like, well, what are you going to do with this? So I thought because of, I said I wanted to do interior design mainly because I didn't really know about architecture. Is that a woman thing? No, I don't think so. It's just at the time in the late 80s, interior design was big. It's when it became a degree. Mm. So it had more, I think we heard more about it. And in my family, in like four generations, the interior of a house has always been very important and art especially. So there's a big ritual about hanging paintings, moving furniture, changing the fabric of the furniture. And this has kind of always been in the, in the discussion. So, and making things also, like if you don't, if you need something, you tend to make it. So that's where the kind of interior design idea came in. Um, And I had a German teacher uh, who said, oh, my brother's an architect. Why don't you go? And they have interior designers in their office. Why don't you go and visit? So I did. And it was just by luck that it was a very small but big firm. So there was only one or two per discipline, but they had a landscape architect, interior designer, architect, and a uh, in England, you can have a planner. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they had a planner in office And they were operating out of Chelsea, which at the time they were getting rid of the warehouses and there was a lot of development. So they were doing master planning scale to interior design. So I went around the office, everybody explained what they did. And I realized that the architect was the controller of the whole game. And it was that that attracted me. It wasn't the design per se, it was just... I felt if I was an interior designer, I wouldn't have full control of a vision. Mm-hmm. So that's where architecture came in. And then the principal said, well, you can't really do anything else with this combination of topics anyway. <laughs> Good luck. Off you go. So that's what I did. So how many different firms did you work for between you know, once you graduated and today, let's say? So the only time I really did an internship was on that year out. Uh, and that was a relatively short one. So starting with that one, three in London, Japan, two in Turkey, seven, ten. Okay. Yeah. So without getting too into everyone, can you give us an idea of the different experiences that you saw within each uh, with those ten? Sure. Um, I think I've at first, of course, you're just looking for a job, but I was still selective because my expertise by the time I graduated was performance art buildings. So that really was my kind of search path for a firm that did that. 
But the problem is every time I went into employment, there was a recession and I've managed to do that in three countries. So I'm really good at it. So I didn't really always have first choice, but I've managed to work from a two person firm to a like 90 person firm. So I've done all and I know the difference. And after a while, it, you know, I'm able to make a preference depending on what I'm looking for. One criteria has actually always been, can I walk to work? And I know it sounds a little flippant, but I think just like I think architecture is important, your transition from home to work is actually really important. And I don't want that experience to be a driving experience. I don't mind public transport, that's okay. But driving, it doesn't set me in the right framework when arriving to work. The people are very important. So the only job I was ever been uh, fired from is probably because the people match wasn't right. Um, I worked there for about a month and I was glad to go. They were glad I went. It was just a, you know, um, a bad match. So people is important and the quality of the work. I can't be in a firm where I'm not proud of the work that comes out. How about though, from an organizational standpoint, in terms of how the offices were run by whomever within those offices? Well, few offices are run, is my conclusion. Many offices happen and... Explain that. Well, run is, is an active word, right? It implies you have a plan and you operate according to that plan. So a lot of offices that vision is after the fact. It's not future planned as much, at least the ones I've been in. So they're more generated by the jobs you get. You get that job and then that makes you think in a different way or your needs change and you react to that need as opposed to other industries actually where they have a plan first and then kind of get the jobs. It's, it's kind of reverse in architecture. We're very driven by the projects that we land, I think, even pursue, you know? So how, are, are we different here? I don't know if we're that different on the pursue, but we are different in pre-planning, I think. And I think that that shows in the delivery because you're not, you know, you're not reactive all the time. Administrative staff, I would say that's a big topic also between the places I've worked. It's not always the presumption that a small firm doesn't have administrative staff. I've been in a small firm of two with two administrative staff. It's interesting. It has its advantages. I've been in a firm with a whole army of administrative staff, you know, and that has its disadvantages, even though it looks like tons of stuff is done for you. There's a huge disconnect sometimes between those. One thing we do do here, which I think is a big difference and not just size related, is that you answer a phone call. On the client side, I think they feel great because they know that whoever picks up the phone, they don't yet know it's you, but they're going to get an answer that's real. But on our side, on the workhouse side, we don't have to deal with all the phone calls. And that's actually for more junior staff, that's a huge relief of stress. 
So that's something that is very different. Not, not very few officers do that. I don't think it's just a matter of time. In terms of paperwork organization, I think it's a matter of where we are in the history of digital material. We are, all, I'm not going to say paper-free, but we almost are. And that has a huge benefit because before, somebody had to manage that paper physically, and then you had to find that piece of paper. So your, the organizational skills of that office was more critical. Now, with a search word, you can find things even if they're in the wrong place. Before, that would lead to chaos, and therefore, you had to have a good admin person. Do you enjoy being in the manager position? Not solely, no. I think management is fed by design. I don't think you can manage if you don't also draw and if you don't also design because you wouldn't know what to manage. Well, you would, but you would be removed from the product that you are tasked with managing. Okay, so so what you're saying is is that in order for a manager to succeed, if you're going to define, in quotations, a manager position, mm-hmm. that position is most successful if they also, in an architectural firm, are involved in the design process. Is that fair to say? schools of thought. Particular to architecture, I actually believe that because of what architecture is. However, it depends on your resource. If your resource, i.e. human, is not the right and left brain, if they are not as balanced, they're not going to be comfortable doing both simultaneously. So you would have to split it. So I think it's, um, it's my particular reaction, but I think that is what's better for the industry. If one person, at least maybe it's not a 50-50 split, but they are not removed from the drawing and the designing. I, yeah, I really believe that. Actually, what's your dream position in in an architectural architectural firm? In an architectural firm, probably to be able to be fully functional in all the sequence of architecture, including site work. For me, like site work as the lead architect, sure, on a specific project, and yeah, I mean to be able to, I think. The design, the drawing, the being on site, and the managing. For me, that's a whole package. And the learning cycle is so effective when it's like that. And I haven't learned enough, so I still want to do that cycle. Do you believe that every project requires a certain hierarchy of people and or management? Hierarchy? No, I don't think architecture is about hierarchy. Architecture is very lateral. I think it's more productive when it's lateral because you never know where a good idea is going to come from. And hierarchy kills that flexibility, in my opinion. So how does that fit into a management person? Meaning, does, does there need to be somebody in charge or in a position of, direct, of being able to direct people? I think the situations create that need 
And I think when a person assumes that as a position, it's not successful. It's about stepping in when it's needed and stepping back when it's not. And what I find slightly destruct destructive in larger firms or even different firms is this idea that that person is wearing that hat called manager and that gives them a certain license to manage, right? Mm-hmm. Even when management is not needed, mm-hmm. when actually letting it go is needed. So it's it's that the defined role, but that's maybe my thing. I'm not really into defined roles. Right. I <laughs> I have a more liquid approach to facilitating. But you still end up in that role, Salma. But I also let other people... No, no, no. Absolutely. ...fit in. And I think if I saw it as a role that I had to stick to, I don't think I would do as good a job. Do you think employees in architectural firms desire that fluidity? Or do you think they prefer to have somebody give them direction? So... Architecture is still very much an apprentice profession. And unfortunately, that's not explained correctly at graduation level. So the expectations a new new graduate has relative to the reality is there's a bit of a mismatch. So if that could be orchestrated a little better, there would be this natural development from being told what to do to knowing what to do. Like that transition would be better. And I think that's where the management comes in to let that person grow so that they can be a manager of themselves because that's what you don't want to do is take that away from them. And each person has to have a professional hat on. It's their hat. I'm not going to take responsibility for that person's professional thinking skills. They have to develop that. So as a manager, I think we have to set the environment so that happens. If we have to constantly manage every little thing, I don't think that's a job done well. So is another way of putting it that we are more mentors than managers if in a good office? For the good for the goal for the that we the set. Yeah. yeah. And I think that goal setting is important in that. So everybody knows which direction they're going in, right? If you constantly have to say put your fork down, put put your fork up, put the food in your mouth, instead of you need to feed yourself. Right. It's more work for me. I don't, you know, I'm also, I don't want to do that much work. Right. Oh, and I also think that, I think the key word is taking responsibility, is responsibility, right? Is that if each person in a firm understands and even wants to take that responsibility for themselves, the end result is always going to be better. Versus, and many architectural firms run it this way, where there is that hierarchy and somebody says, you do this, you do this, you do this, and you wait until they do it or don't do it. And then you get upset if they don't do it or, you you know, and that's something that I, I would say we are consistently trying to get better at and make better all the time, because I don't think that's even human nature. Sometimes I think there's a a natural desire to be told what to do instead of taking responsibility sometimes. I think it depends on the happiness person, happiness level of that person with their job. If you haven't got that, then it's just not going to ever 
be a situation where that person takes responsibility because they don't want that risk or that ownership or that relationship. I've, in, I had a, in a previous office, we had a technician who was so qualified, so, so qualified as an architect who had just defaulted to the role of a technician. And one time I was like, why do you draw the detail that way? And it was some very silly reason, like 10 years ago, had been told that's how it needed to be. But technology had changed 10 years, but that person was never given the authority to keep up with that detail and produce a new one. So is that okay? It kind of is, but it's a waste of that person's intelligence and resources. Therefore, although it might work for that firm, how much better would that firm be if that person was allowed to be effective? You know? All right. Last question. How much has technology impacted this ability to give people the sense of responsibility and your ability to help them understand that their roles? And we have gone through this for a while now in terms of trying to select or trying to figure out different programs to help us in our format of getting projects done, right? right? Whether we're talking about a scheduling program, whether we're talking about a communications program, whether we're talking about a design program, we, all of these different tools out there have different impacts for different people too, we've noticed, yeah. right? So right. some people are more comfortable in, in a 3D modeling program where somebody is more comfortable in a 2D version. How have you seen that help I, or not help? Well, when I uh, was at university, my university had developed its own software. So it wasn't AutoCAD. It was a complete different software. But I drew by hand. I graduated by hand. And I didn't learn AutoCAD until I went to Turkey, actually. And I got the, a job to work on an opera project. They were drawing it in CAD. So I was like, okay, and that's how I learned it. And then I had to teach it, so I just read the book. So for me, technology acquisition has been on a different process than many people. Many people are taught or expected to taught, whereas what I've found is that you can, it's like languages, really. Once you know a few, it, there's a certain logic. So when we went over to Revit, this was a discussion, right? Which projects do you use Revit on? How do you use it? The Revit template, it comes with a template. It's not functional. It's not because of how we want to use it. So more and more, I'm seeing that the software designers are not as possessive about how they structure it. They're allowing more user interface. That's good. It's good for our industry because there are not enough architects out there designing software for architects. If there were, it would be great because as part of our training, we're always dealing with at least five disciplines, even though we're not, tra we're not licensed in it, we still need to know. So technology, yes, it's out there, but I mean, it shouldn't have taken us six months to find a project management software. We're still looking. We're still looking. And I mean, I don't think it's that weird what we're asking for. It's just, it's made for the marketing industry. 
It's, and they say it. It's for the human resources management team. It doesn't work for architecture. I'm frustrated on the project management level, for sure. I think for drawing with BIM modeling, it's getting there. I'm wondering whether BIM should have a management aspect to it that it doesn't do. Should it actually track where you are in your, if you define the parameters of where you want to be in schematic design, construction design, can it actually know where you are and tell you you are X percent done? For example, why not? Mm -hmm. It's data. It just takes an analysis kind of coding to it uh, so that you are not separating the production from the output or even the management. Right. It's kind of, I, so technology, yes, great. But it's also about how you use it. It's like, and we've talked about this. You look at a render, you look at a design, and you say, well, that's a Lumion render, and that's a SketchUp model. I don't think it should be like that. I like what's coming out of our office now, because you can't tell how it was made. Mm. Because we're using roughly on any one thing, render that goes out, at least a render, there's five softwares. And that's how you do when you do it by hand. You, know, you don't even, say, you don't even use one grade of pencil, right. right? Right. So it, I think that's how it needs to be. And also, one thing we we probably can work more on is uh, the design phase of where you know do we use more tools as we're formulating that first part? Because with you know during COVID, we didn't, we were in different locations. We actually ended up using more tools to design. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a good thing that on our next project, maybe we look at the, the management of that, you know, which, what, what do we use when? We've done more of that for DD, probably not as much for SD. All right. So I lied. Here's my last question. Do you think there's a correlation between your diverse background, mm -hmm. which you clearly described mm -hmm. and the diversity of the different programs that we are using of the diversity of the different people that are involved in the projects like is i am what's sure, the link i am sure i think it's i'm very process driven therefore i'm and i'm very process driven to the point where i know sometimes you want to get to the goal and we you know talk about that but I don't choose a method for that delivery. I choose it because it seems to be a good method. And so each problem we have ends up having a different method. We use different tools. The process is the same. And just like languages, you improve on the results according to which tools you use. So, for example, German is a great language for certain things, chemistry being one of them, engineering the other, just because of how the syntax works and how words are compounded. Japanese is not. Japanese grammar is far too simple to explain complex ideas. And therefore, SketchUp is too simplistic for something, and Rhino is what you need if you're doing curves. Rather than saying, I know Rhino, and I will draw it with Rhino, I have never done that. I've gone... I need to learn Rhino because I want to curve. Mm -hmm. 
or I will use a pencil because this is taking too long. Right. Right. And that I think that ability to accept defeat and choose a different method is important. But but also stay diverse and 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 able to adjust. Right. I, I hate the response I sometimes get was like, well, Revit does that, or well, that's Photoshop. Well then use something else. Right. Right. And I I think that's healthier because otherwise you're just going round and round with your own same things. Agreed. And I think our projects hopefully have 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 utilized that mentality to ultimately get the best results for our clients and for the project success. Alrighty. Well, thank you. You're welcome. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed Selma's take on everything architecture. For our last and final episode of the season, we're revisiting our first interviewee, Dr. Sydney Turner. But instead of just talking about the project, she and I will be walking through Resilient Retreat's new home. You don't want to miss it.